You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. Southeast Asia's economic rise is one of the world's most underrated success stories. The nations that call this corner of the world home have become a leading growth market, powering China, the U.S., and much of the world with trade, manufacturing, digital know-how, and a wealth of natural resources. Its progress is real, but the most exciting part of Southeast Asia's growth story is yet to come. What lies ahead, and how can investors tap into the region's potential? Let's bring in James Chio, Chief Investment Officer at HSBC Private Bank. I think the potential and the economic opportunities for Southeast Asia remains extremely exciting, and that's why we are seeing much more interest in Southeast Asia in the years ahead. And Rena Kwok, Asia's financial credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. The trust in the banking system is important, and no bank can actually survive a bank run. Both joining us from Singapore, James and Rena, welcome. Hi, Tom and John. Good to be here. Pleasure to be here. James, why are investors getting excited about Southeast Asia right now? Well, I think Southeast Asia is on the cusp of a major transformation, and clearly, I think when you look at the market performance of Southeast Asia, at least over the last one and a half years, it exhibits a lot of resilience, especially in 2022. But really, I think some underlying economic currents are happening. For one, the digital economy in Southeast Asia is actually growing very, very fast, and of course, that's aiding and helping that whole middle class consumption story that's going to be very strong in the years ahead. But also at the same time, what we are having is also a green transformation that's happening in Southeast Asia. Many parts of the economy in Southeast Asia it's going to become much more reliant on renewable energy. As well as, of course,、uh, electrification of its transportation system and making its cities much smarter in terms of using electricity and energy. So I think the potential and the economic opportunities for Southeast Asia remains extremely exciting, and that's why we are seeing much more interest in Southeast Asia in the years ahead. James, you discussed the digital revolution that's going on in Southeast Asia. Can you mention some names, some companies, some countries that are really benefiting from this trend? Clearly, I think what the pandemic did was to kind of digitize a lot of our activities, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's travel, whether it's how we buy goods and services. And I think that digital transformation is extremely powerful,、uh, especially for Southeast Asia. And that the size of Southeast Asia's digital economy is expected to grow in an exponential rate in the years ahead. So what you could expect is, of course, a change in consumption patterns. And many big、uh, digital platforms have already. Really been present、uh, in many of the Southeast Asian markets. James, I saw one statistic that Southeast Asia has 915 million active mobile connections. That's about one and a half times its population. How did Southeast Asia get from there to here? What is it about Southeast Asia that made it such a digital growth market? Southeast Asia sort of leapfrogged the entire evolution of sorts because、uh, many of Southeast Asian、uh, consumers or households do not have 
desktops or even laptops, uh, but everyone has a mobile. So in that sense, the huge adoption of mobile, of technology and apps on the mobile does create that sort of mobile connections that, that Southeast Asia have. Traffic jams are an uh, issue uh, in many cities like Jakarta or even Bangkok or even uh, Manila. But in order for people to order their food deliveries, uh, sometimes uh, delivering on the app makes it faster because a lot of the deliveries are on two-wheelers, which actually can cut through the traffic. And it's all done through the, the app application. So I, I think that whole digitization of Southeast Asia became so fast and so quick really because of the use of mobile phones. There wasn't a sort of an age where people were on laptops or desktops. It's almost everyone was on mobiles immediately. And also second, the ease and convenience of using it in their daily lives, which makes the rise of the digital economy much, much faster than in many parts of the world. James, you mentioned ride-hailing apps, food delivery. Are they the most popular usages of you know, the digital uh, mobile phones and the digital revolution that's going on? Well, I think that is kind of at the margin, the first uh, way how people transact in their day-to-day activities. So what you could see is that more and more of whatever transactions that were done previously uh, on a physical level, it's being done on a digital level. So whether it's taking a cab, whether it's ordering food, whether it's to uh, kind of purchase big items, it's been transferred in, in many of the activities into being done on the digital economy. So I think it, there is a broadening of activities slowly as digital apps or even the digital economy become much more sophisticated to deal with the changing needs of the consumers. James Chio, you just talked a lot about the digital economy in Southeast Asia, but let's talk a little bit about the banking side. Uh, We've seen banking failures in the U.S. and Europe recently. What about Asia in particular in Southeast Asia and some of the liquidity challenges? Rena Kwok, what do you have to add about that? Thanks for having me, Tom. Now, we actually believe for most of the Southeast Asian banks, they are unlikely to actually face the deposit flight scenario that actually topple some of the overseas banks that we have seen recently, given the relatively healthy liquidity profile amid the rising interest rates. Now, for most of the lenders in Southeast Asia, they are largely funded by stable and diversified deposits locally. And both of these deposits are actually invested in loans, uh, with most of the lenders' loan-to-deposit ratio well below 100%. And this actually suggests that there are sufficient uh, liquidity to meet the loans. And of course, you know, that regulatory liquidity ratios are also well above the minimum hurdles. But at the end of the day, more importantly, the trust in the banking system is important and no bank can actually survive a bank run. Rena, there's been banking failures in the US and Europe, including Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, recently Credit Suisse. It hasn't impacted Asia yet. Are Asia banks, and the ones in particular in Southeast Asia, in a stronger position? Sure, I think there are a couple of areas to focus on as we look into a rising interest rate environment. Uh, I think definitely uh, with all the recent uh, turmoil that we see in the global banking sector, what we call asset liability management is key. What we call uh, the mismatches between the asset and liabilities and the interest rate management. Now, speaking of interest rate management, we have talked about you know unrealized losses that we have seen in some of their overseas banks and taking that closer to home where you know West Southeast Asian banks are. We believe that for for most of the Southeast Asian banks, the extent of unrealized losses are manageable even as interest rate rise. You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence. By the way, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you may be listening to us. Of course, more stars are better. Your feedback matters, and we love hearing from our listeners.
As strange as it may sound, can Southeast Asia almost be considered a safe haven? Oh, well, I wouldn't go as far as to say that uh, Southeast Asia will become a safe haven. Uh, Southeast Asia very much learned from its lessons from the past. The 97, 98 uh, Asian financial crisis where many banks face the same problems as we are seeing now with, with the current uh, banking situation in, in US and Europe. But because of that, many of those banks went through uh, significant deleveraging. They went through better capital management. Uh, and of course, business model had to become uh, much more robust, especially through the cycle. Uh, so I think from that perspective, there is a, a sort of resilience in the banking system as a result. So these things are going very well for Southeast Asia. It is an opportunity, but clearly, um, I won't say it's a safe haven as yet, but nevertheless, there will be bumps and risks down the road, just like any risk assets out there. James Chio, how much of a challenge is infrastructure investment in Southeast Asia, would you say? And how do you see that unfolding over the next five to seven years? Well, I think infrastructure is going to be a very interesting theme. And I think on various dimensions, I think one of the most important infrastructure spending uh, that has occurred over the last uh, few years, it's really to improve on the existing roads, airports, and train uh, connections. And I think those have been going very well, especially if you look at countries like Indonesia, for example, to link up the entire country, which is an archipelago of, of many islands. You have to improve the ports, you have to improve the airports, uh, train linkages, roads, rails. It's a significant project. But I think on many fronts, those things have improved quite a fair bit uh, in Southeast Asia and there is still scope for improvements in many parts of the region. But also I think there is an increasing focus on energy infrastructure in Southeast Asia, especially as the region is going to transit into much more renewable energies. And so if you think about Southeast Asia as a region, uh, Thailand has its automotive industry, Indonesia with its uh, nickel deposit and perhaps improved manufacturing of lithium batteries, and if you connect all these countries, and of course, Malaysia with its uh, manufacturing of semiconductor chips, if you combine this region as a whole uh, through the free trade agreement, it's quite an interesting manufacturing hub uh, for the electric vehicle ecosystem that's going to be quite uh, significant in the years ahead. James, you mentioned quite a few countries there. Which countries in Southeast Asia do you think are the most appealing right now? Well, I think from a near-term perspective, I think we want to look at perhaps uh, Indonesia and Thailand, for example, because for one, uh, the global economy is going to be slowing down generally. And of course, Indonesia has a large domestic population, and a big middle class, and that could buffer some of the volatility associated with slower growth. But also, I think you want to play into that whole China's reopening, which is, is ongoing. And if you look at the data, it's faster than expected. So as Chinese consumers buy more goods and services, uh, particularly commodities from Indonesia, as well as Thailand, whether it's agriculture produce or fossil fuel related produce, you will see uh, Indonesia and Thailand benefiting from that China reopening. James Chio, Rena Kwok, we've seen some Western companies start to distance themselves a bit from China. Some are a little uneasy with a shift in tone there since the pandemic. Apple is already decoupling, maybe shifting some manufacturing to India and elsewhere. Can Southeast Asia benefit from this new wariness about China? Or is the region's chariot hitched too tightly to China's star? Your take. Well, I think that whole trend of deglobalization, and of course, uh, is something that many big multinational or big global companies are making that decision. Uh, Southeast Asia clearly is a destination alongside India as well. And of course, 
it has to be taken to account the entire kind of criteria. Of course, uh, certain countries have lower labor costs and uh, a labor market that's very competitive. For a multinational company, of course, they want to look at where to make production lines, uh, perhaps more resilient. Southeast Asia is a destination. But also don't forget that Southeast Asia is, has also a large uh, population to be consumers. So 680 million people as consumers for smartphones, for electronic goods, for electric vehicles. So that also means that it's nearer to the customer. So I think in a way, I would say the demand for these goods are going to be very important. And I think that's why it is a key destination to look at for many of global companies looking to set up shop in the region. Rena Kwok with Bloomberg Intelligence. Any thoughts? Yeah, and I may just add to what James has mentioned. We have actually seen for some of the lenders in this region, they've actually tapped on what we call the ASEAN cross-border trade flows. And that's actually helped the banks as we, you know, some of the countries actually face uh, rising macro headwinds that could actually dampen some of the loan growth outlook that we see for some of the major banks here. And as Singapore banks continue to tap on the loan growth that, you know, amid the macro headwinds, the diversification that we see in this broader region could help the banks uh, bolster their earnings momentum as, uh, you know, we see some of the macro headwinds this year. Earlier this year, China's population was overtaken by India. A lot of Northeast Asian countries like China, Japan, Korea are facing a demographic headwind with an aging population. How is Southeast Asia placed in this regard? It has a younger population, and of course, that will be a tailwind for many parts of Southeast Asia in the next uh, decade or so. And that's why, if you think about how economics and growth is, is primarily about population uh, increase in labor force participation as well as productivity growth. And I think on that count, uh, in terms of growth of population, you're going to see quite a fair bit from Southeast Asia, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's Philippines, etc. So I think that's why that whole demographic uh, dividend is is a, a very powerful story, one of rising population as well as rising income for Southeast Asia. Rina, there's a lot of financial pundits talking about commercial real estate loans. Some are saying that this is going to be the next shoe to drop. Is this a risk for Southeast Asia and in particular Singapore? I think that's a very good question, John. As we look into what could be the possible trigger points of stress uh, globally, I think Singapore Bank's commercial real estate loans could face very measurable credit losses despite the rising macro headwinds and, of course, the elevated interest rate risk, as most of their exposures are actually to good quality companies with relatively low default risk. Now, most of the Singapore Bank's commercial real estate uh, exposures are in Singapore, where we do believe that Singapore real estate sector could remain resilient this year, given the solid fundamentals that are supporting the office and retail segment. And related to this question, Singapore just raised stamp duty for foreigners buying real estate from 30% to 60%. That's by far the biggest in the world. Just how hot is the property market over there? For the real estate sector, it's always been, uh, I think, one of the hottest markets in Asia. And I think if you see for the past many years, uh, housing loans has always been a dominant loan book, uh, I would say part of the loan book for Singapore banks. And the next question we may have is that would that actually severely dampen the housing loans growth that we see for the Singapore banks? Now, just to take a step back firstly, this recent measures, they are impacting more of the foreigners. So for most of the housing loans uh, and the Singapore banks don't book that mostly for the first-time buyers. So that being said, um, uh, the impact could be more manageable. But of course, with the rising interest rates and of course, uh, some of the new measures that, that kick in uh, recently, it might actually dampen the growth a little. It moderates, but it's unlikely to collapse. 
James Chio, you sound like a Southeast Asia bull, am I right? Well, that's right. I mean, from a long-term perspective, definitely because of all these criteria, and I've coined the term uh, Southeast Asian tigers, uh, T for technology, I for the rising income of the middle class, G for green transformation, E for energy infrastructure, and R, RCEP. So if you remember Southeast Asia tigers, I think you have many reasons to kind of be bullish for Southeast Asia for the next decade. That's very clever. Now, at the risk of putting you on the spot, as investors, we like to look up and down. Where would the landmines lurk? In other words, what could go wrong? What are the investment risks in Southeast Asia and where might they be hiding? Yeah, well, I think for one, Southeast Asia is not immune to the global economy. That's very clear. And also, Southeast Asia is not immune to global risk sentiment. So if you do get a pullback or a sharp decline in in global risk appetite, Southeast Asia can face certain pullbacks because of that. So that's a kind of a near-term risk. But in terms of the fundamental growth story, I think it's very much intact uh, and it takes quite a big uh, shock to kind of de-risk it. I think to manage and mitigate the, the effects of climate change for many parts of Southeast Asia, I think it's going to be both a risk as well as an opportunity. So there are big, uh, of course, these risks facing Southeast Asia. And I think these are the things that kind of one should watch out for, both for the near term as, as well as the longer term. James, for investors focused on ESG, how attractive is Southeast Asia? Well, I think that there are a few ways investors could think about it. Of course, um, you first and foremost want to look at companies within Southeast Asia that does well on these three dimensions, ES and G. And clearly, I think companies that usually are the best managed or high quality companies usually have good scores on that front. But also, I think another way to think about that is also to think of it as a thematic opportunity. So whether it's the energy transition within Southeast Asia, I think that's an opportunity whether it's companies or even corporations that are pushing ahead in the electrification of Southeast Asia's transportation system. So I think there are many interesting kind of thematics that's going on in Southeast Asia. And I think many times uh, investors fail to realize that these teams are actually uh, moving in the right direction. And there's quite a lot of kind of opportunities out there for this region. Our guests are James Chio, Chief Investment Officer at HSBC Private Bank, and Rena Kwok, Asia Financials Credit Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. James, you just spoke at length about ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. There's been a perception that ESG has been slow to gain traction in this part of the world, as opposed to the West, perhaps the UK, Europe, the United States. Is that a fair assessment? And if so... Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think people are recognizing the importance of that, whether it's from companies, whether it's from governments, or even from households and consumers, or even uh, general investors. And it's clear that there is no other way to in fact, solve the whole climate change issue. And Southeast Asia is a big part of this whole equation. So we have many governments in Southeast Asia coming out kind of net zero pledges. Many companies within Southeast Asia have also came out with their net zero plans as well. And also consumers generally now are becoming much more aware of how they consume and what they look out for when they buy certain products. And I can say that also for general investors as well, demanding more of companies when it comes to ESG standards and disclosures. I think we have a sort of an alignment of stars in that sense and things are moving in the right direction. While it might not be as quick as most people hope for, but at least I think the direction is moving in the right way. 
James, if you're bullish on Southeast Asia, as an investor, how would you play this theme? I think in the near term, some of the equity markets within Southeast Asia, such as Indonesia, Thailand, looks interesting. And you want to pick the companies that could benefit from China's reopening, for example. So, of course, there are a few ways to play, whether it's to buy some of the consumer companies within these markets, some of the commodity players, or even to look at some of the well-managed banks that could benefit from the whole recovery of the region. Over the longer term, you want to look for some of the longer term dynamics, whether it's technology, whether it's middle class, rising income, middle class, green transformation, energy infrastructure, or the trade, the RCEP, the tigers that I've talked about. There are many companies that are geared towards growing that whole Asian, Southeast Asian tigers stories. Longer term, I think those companies that are well positioned on these big structural trends, I think can do very well in the years ahead. And Rena, what about your space? Yeah, I think in my space, uh, I think probably one of their most recent uh, keenly watched upon is the AT1s. You know, are we still comfortable with the AT1s issued by most of the Southeast Asian banks? I think in this rising interest rate environment, one of the key risks to watch is what we call the potential non-core risk for the AT1s that are issued for most of the Southeast Asian banks. And on that front, we believe that for most of the dollar AT1s, now firstly, let me just take a step back to, you know, to talk about what are AT1s. Now, this AT1s, this three-letter word, is a form of hybrid debt that counts towards a bank's regulatory capital, right? AT1s are actually subordinated in the bank's capital structure. So we They're like contingent that- convertibles, right, Rena? Or more like a cross between a stock and a bond? Yeah, so they are like a hybrid debt. Uh, that counts towards the bank's uh, regulatory capital, right? And uh, as mentioned earlier, it's subordinated in the bank's capital structure, making it a more riskier kind of debt product as compared to the rest of the bank's bonds. So they're hot when times are good, but its holders are at the head of the line of sacrificial lambs, if you will, when the walls start crumbling because AT1s are often the first domino to fall. Do I have that right? So theoretically, if we look into the bank's capital structure, AT1s definitely are fall below what we call the bank's capital structure, and they only have rank above what we call the common equity. So they are definitely among the riskier kind of debt instruments. And that being said, and that explains why it's higher use and, of course, uh, lower ratings. Yeah, I think equities was traditionally the first line to fall, but the Swiss regulator had a few comments to say about that. Rena Kwok, do you think what happened with Credit Suisse's AT1s changed perceptions of the security or did it just expose risk that was already there but investors didn't recognize it? I think definitely for an investor, as we buy into a riskier, high-yielding instrument, it's always key to read the bond's terms. I think uh, all of the terms and conditions are usually stated in the bond prospectus. So it's definitely key for investors to uh, you know, read all the details closely. Now, what's next for really banks' AT1s going forward? Definitely, we know that banks' funding via AT1s will be more expensive going forward as investor price and such risk as they question whether the seniority of claims are still being respected by the various jurisdictions. Now, the next question we ask is that are AT1s still a viable funding tool for the banks? Now, for most of the Southeast Asian banks, they can still tap on the AT1 market as a possible funding source for Tier 1 capital if required. And it remains cheaper to fill the AT1 requirements for AT1 capital instead of common equity. James Chio, Rena Kwok, I'm a U.S. investor or a Western investor. Maybe I don't know Southeast Asia that well. Maybe I've never traveled here, but I'm looking for exposure 
to Southeast Asia as a growth market. Where do I look? Uh, well, I think uh, as an investor, you have to kind of think of Southeast Asia from a global diversification perspective. Um, so I won't say you want to invest everything you have in Southeast Asia, but it has to be part of your portfolio from a global diversification perspective. So I think first step, of course, is to kind of uh, do your own research, learn about where the region's opportunities are, look at the past performance of how the region has performed. Uh, and ultimately, once you are comfortable with the growth story and the opportunity, you could always allocate a percentage into the easiest way, of course, uh, is to look at exchange-traded funds. But also, you could also consider uh, mutual funds to get a diversified holding and exposure to the region. I, th I think that's usually how investors get a first kind of a step into Southeast Asia. Rena Kwok, any thoughts? Yeah, if I may just add, if we look into what we call the capital bonds that are issued by most of the Southeast Asian banks, it's key to look into what is the incremental you pick up as we move down a bank's capital structure. Now, as James pointed out, you know, Thailand plays on a reopening play in China. So as we look into the dollar capital bonds that are issued by Thai banks, um, tier 2s could offer relative value for most of the Thai banks. Now, if we look into 81s, as mentioned, there are some key risks to watch what is the possibility of non-core risk and, uh, of course, the bank's underlying credit fundamentals. And we have to look, while we look into potential relative value opportunities, we have to be cognizant of each AT1 bond structure as well as the bank fundamentals. And we have mentioned that for Singapore banks, dollar AT1s, uh, they could be quite resilient if it had actually seen a much lower sell-off as compared to global peers amid the whole banking turmoil lately. James Chio, Chief Investment Officer at HSBC Private Bank, and Rena Kwok, Asia Financial's Credit Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you both very much for shedding some light on what's really a remarkable economic growth story in Southeast Asia. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Tom and John. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. This podcast was edited by Clara Chen. And thank you for listening to the Asia-Centric Podcast. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.